Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Today, our guest is Dr. Ava Shamban, who is best known as the skincare maven from TV's Extreme Makeover and The Doctors. Her journey from top Harvard Medical School grad to trailblazing research scientist at the forefront of state-of-the-art high-tech dermatological techniques is an inspiration. Dr. Ava lectures internationally, serves as a principal investigator on many FDA trials, and is the author of Heal Your Skin, The Breakthrough Plan for Renewal. She's an assistant clinical professor at the UCLA Geffen School of Medicine, is a frequently quoted health and beauty expert all over the world, and has private practices in Santa Monica, Beverly Hills, and Century City, and has recently started a new business called Skin Times 5. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward to find out how Dr. Ava does it all. So we would like to begin today by talking about you, where you're from. Well, my parents found me under a rock in the backyard, <laughs> right here in Los Angeles. <laughs> although Thank God although my you. friends think that I was really spirited away from New York City because I'm petite and brunette, and since I was born here in California, I really should be tall and blonde. Did you feel like you were other than your peers in, in L.A., or is it just an aesthetic comment? It's a little bit hard to say. I grew up in Pacific Palisades, and I went to Westlake at the time with School for Girls. And so out of 65 girls, I was the third most petite girl, or maybe even the second. Mm. And most of my friends, so I'm five, two and a half, and my friends are about five, ten, <laughs> all the way up to five, <laughs> six feet. Well, maybe five, eight, six feet. But I didn't really feel as an outsider, but I definitely looked different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it mm-hmm. wasn't until I went back east to, to college, I went to Harvard University, that I was like, oh, here are my people. <laughs> because most, the majority of women there were like me. Do you have brothers and sisters? I do. I'm much older than I am. So they were they were born much earlier. And what you, was that so gap? 16 and 12 years. I pretty much grew up as an only child. Yeah. Wow. My mother had my brother and sister very young. And so... And then she got so, And then she had me. My mother was really an interesting character because my parents... My mother was born in the Ukraine and came across... Back when, back when the Statue of Liberty said, "Bring me your huddled, your poor, your <laughs> as your opposed to now, only come in if you got a higher degree." So she came in right after the third wave of pogroms in Russia. So she was probably about three years old. No one really knows when she was born because she was born mm. in a kitchen. And right. so when they came through to Ellis Island, they had to, you know, they figured it was the spring of um, 1918, and they um, gave her a birth date of May 4th. And so she grew up very poor 
tour in Boston. And my father, who was born here, his parents also were born in Europe, and they came over slightly earlier because he was born here. And they met in high school. And so they got married, and I think she had her first child. She was like 18 or 19, you know. This is one of those early things. And she stayed married all the way through her life. Oh, yeah, a thousand million years they were married. (laughs) My father was number three out of four boys, and they were all very smart. He went to Boston Latin School, which was like the science nerdy place. But they were so poor, his clothes were sewn together from his older brothers. It was only until at the end of his life that he told me the story that he was accepted at MIT. He didn't have enough money to go there the first year and went to Maine, where he could go to the University of Maine at no charge or something. Then a relative who had done well gave him enough money, and he went to MIT and finished at MIT and was a chemical engineer. Wow. So he went on to create an aerospace business, and two of the of the other three brothers formed an advertising agency called Allied Advertising, which was sold and is still around today. And they all were very successful. And Your uh, older brother and sister educated? Yeah. Did they go to mm-hmm. Harvard? Or, no. No? But they were educated. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're much older. So... The family started in Boston, and my brother and sister were born in that area. And then my brother was sick all the time and almost died, and so they moved to California. And that's where my father really started his company. And that's how I grew up here, looking like I really (laughs) belonged on the East Coast. But my mother, who had just had a high school degree, and of course she went to – I think she went to yeshiva. I mean she went somewhere. She spoke Hebrew and Yiddish and English – And when she came here, she was very interested in getting an education. So during my childhood, when I was like 10 and 11, she went to Santa Monica College, Uh which really informed my childhood because she came home and she talked about, you know, all the courses she was taking. She talked about the limbic system and the amygdala. (laughs) And um, she was really a character. I mean, this was like the late 60s, early 70s. She would go skinny dipping in the pool. (laughs) I never noticed that she didn't have like a bunch of friends who she – she had some friends, but she spent a lot of time reading and by herself. And she did kind of the unthinkable. We were in the Palisades. <laughs> and so we had a lawn, of course. And, and so, But she was taking a course. You know, think about this. This is 1970, 1971. She planted fruit trees on the whole front lawn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In the Palisades. Yeah, because she said, this grass is such a waste. What are we doing here? My mom was like this, too. She read a book called Diet for a Small Planet. And oh, she became yeah. completely entranced with permaculture and being able to self-sustain. And she did the same thing. Yeah, well, we didn't have a bomb shelter, which yeah, now I regret. Did, did what your mom was doing and what mm-hmm. was she studying, did that help determine for you what you wanted to study? I mean, before the show began, we talked about, you know, what your calling was. No, I just had a calling. I mean, when I was a little girl, I read every single book, I swear, in the Pacific Palisades Library. I just was a big reader. And um, On a, anything specific or? Um, well, I certainly read every book about witches. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It was the fantasy. It was, but I read like very old books. Like you wouldn't even, like books that were published, you know, in 1880. Yeah, I read are. all the C.S. Lewis, you know, the Narnia series. Oh, then. Yeah. I read. I oh yeah, I read too. everything. I read. I don't know the Witch of Blackberry Pond. I read. I read um, everything having to do with magic and stuff. And then I read everything about 
medicine, about nursing. I read all these nursing books, Clara Barton and this and that. And so then I said to my mother, I remember this for sure. I was in sixth grade and I said, mom, I think I want to be a nurse. And she said, do you want to give the orders or take the orders? And I was like, I was wow. already a little bit of a bossy boots then. And so I was like, <laughs> There's no question here. I'm not. <laughs> and that was pretty good. You know, it was 1966, yeah. and she was, like, promoting that. But even then, my mother definitely had the idea that it was important to be able to support yourself and to have your own life. And she regretted that, I think. But she, you know, what options did she have? I mean, so I had a calling for sure. So it was either be a witch or be a doctor. <laughs> and my mom absolutely steered me in the way of medicine. That's so interesting. You have tools and you have expertise, but you also have this drive inside of you that brought you to this point to do this thing. It's your calling. It was It was just a calling. It's just always wonder how that comes to a person. You have warm feelings towards your parents. And your mom encouraged you to be giving the orders and not taking the orders. Was she a supporter of yours? Oh, yeah. She got mad at me once in a while, of course. But my sister was a big rebel, so I saw that when I was growing up. And I don't know. It wasn't my thing. It but wasn't the age disparity between your brother and sister and they were you out of the, they were probably out of the made you the focus of your mother. As she was going through her planting trees in the front lawn in your house in the Palisades, you were almost effectively an only child. I was. And oh, there absolutely. you were. And the end, the laser focus on you. Yeah. And with the fertile mind that you have, it must have been the most interesting time. Well, my mother was not all of this world. She had one foot here and one foot somewhere else. So she was not paying that much attention. She, I mean, she would sort of zoom in and zoom out. You know, she was certainly not a helicopter mom, let's be clear. Right. <laughs> she was much more wrapped up in her own world, wherever that was. And as I said, she wasn't really of this world. What does that mean? She was reading the paper and she had very forward-thinking ideas about women's rights. She would answer the door and she wouldn't talk to the person. Maybe she had a little Asperger's. I don't know. But she was more like that. She was just kind of not all there. She sounds like she was very cerebral. She was very cerebral. The newspaper would be draped over the dining room table. We lived in this very little house in the Palisades. It had been a subdivided lot. And so there was a big pool because the the estate had had a pool and a tennis court. And when they divided it, we were basically in a pool house. (laughs) 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 It was about a a thousand square feet in a U around the pool. And there was just two little bedrooms and kind of a, you know, I mean, it wasn't a fancy house, let me tell you. My father drove a Volvo until he drove like a tiny little Mercedes and, you know, Mustangs. But when I was in high school, I also was interested in acting. I am very theatrical, in case you haven't noticed. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was in every play. So it was like, you know, I mean, it's a lot of girl plays, but we also, we did The Crucible and we had Mm. students from Harvard. and, And then even when I was at Harvard, I did some acting there and I almost was in a main stage production at the, um, what's that, at the Loeb there? or whatever Mm -hmm. the theater is. Anyway, so fortunately, but my mother always told me, she said, you know what? You're too short. You're this, you're that. Oh, I went to camp too. And I played Lucy in Your Good Man, Charlie Brown. And people don't know that about me. But that experience of having the stage experience and the educational background and, you know, yada, 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 really helped my career in so many ways because it gave me the ability to 
present and, you know, everything from very technical meetings to, you know, the soft stuff like being a guest on the Steve Harvey show. Mm-hmm. Do you, so. um, is there a really creative part of you in the acting that you now look back and think, oh, it would be fun to do a little bit of that still? Or Not at all. Not really. <laughs> but it's the absolute hysterical irony to me personally. And the few people who know that I had this acting background <laughs> is that, you know, I ended up <laughs> being a doctor on television not playing a doctor on television I'm actually a doctor on television <laughs> but as a physician in like in dermatologist I've definitely been on television more than anybody else <laughs> yeah what got you interested in dermatology I was in high school and it was a very experimental time we were reading Pirandello and doing guerrilla theater in the hallways and we were looking at books made into movies so we would read women in love and then we'd go see the movie and we with Clockwork Orange, go Mm -hmm. see the movie. Mm -hmm. So the PTA at Harvard, at Westlake, it was just Westlake then, the PTA was very upset about about Clockwork Orange. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) them and the rest of the country. Yeah, yeah, we read Siddhartha, Herman Hess. I mean, we read, we really were educated, but more from a literary. I mean, of course, I took the sciences and everything, but I was very interested in in literature. And so Harvard, I don't know, we just did a a tour. I'd been to Boston a lot, and I looked at Yale, and I thought it looked like jail. And but then when we went and I walked into Harvard Yard and was like, oh, this you is college. Yeah. This is where I want to go. That is the dream campus. And so I just I don't know. I mean, I had very good grades and, you know, good SATs and I was pain in the butt. So they wrote me a good <laughs> letter of recommendation and and I went. And it was very hard. I mean, not the not so much the classes, but it was just such a shock to the system. To you know? live there. Well, just because it's different. It's a much harder edge in, in Cambridge. And they're like, you're too pretty. Stop wearing do, – do this, do that. So by the end of the first year, I'd gained – I don't know, ten pounds, eight ice cream Which every somebody day. Your size, you probably Did, felt yeah. Like it was pretty tubby, telly. and um, <laughs> <laughs> I was just completely not used to anything. Anyway, but it was a great experience. I mean, they have like I don't know, thirty libraries there. It was really quite an informative experience in so many ways. And so then from there, then I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was a psych major. I really didn't know what I wanted to do, even though I had the calling. So I still remember I went out with this guy and he was like, Ava, just go ahead and be a doctor. Stop thinking about it. <laughs> I'm sure I tortured every date. And I went to medical school. I went to Case Western Reserve. Mm-hmm. And that school was a little bit of a choice. I was dating Tucker Taft. He was a <laughs> terrific guy. And his family was Ohio Tafts, the Republican family from the old Republican Mm -hmm. Party. Anyway, so the family was from Cleveland. And so I would go there all the time. And Case was like such a fan. That was actually the best educational experience, Case. It was really great. Very into, very hands-on, very clinically oriented. And medicine is truly, I'm sure you've heard, that it's both an art and a science. But the art of medicine is really kind of more important than the science because now we know that computers can do the science but the art of it of putting together what the patient needs and the healing of the patient is a whole other thing it's a clinical art i always knew when i walked into a room i had a sense of what was wrong with the patient i don't even know when did you decide to go into dermatology when you could have gone many paths well I didn't know. I wanted to go into dermatology. And in fact, I applied in both internal medicine and OBGYN. So, because by then I was dating a different guy. (laughs) (laughs) Tucker was gone. Now we have. Tucker was gone. I was dating this cool guy named David Bagshaw. Anyway, so what happened was I married somebody else. (laughs) 
And so because I applied in both OBGYN and internal medicine, I interviewed across the country in both of those specialties. And I remember going to the OBGYN and I thought, oh, my God, they're cutting these people wide open. I don't – I just don't think I can do that. Mm. And then the medicine, I don't know. They, there wasn't enough action for me. It was so much talk and I already knew what was wrong with the patient. And I was like, can we please stop talking about it and let's do something? There's like talk, talk, talk. <laughs> so I did a straight year of internal medicine in Cleveland because I got married. And then he had to do two years of some kind of payback. And so we went to Carmel. And he found a job in this little area there in the peninsula called Seaside. And then I was working with the migrant farm workers in the valley. I speak Spanish. And so then at the end of it, he wanted to do ophthalmology. He was a pediatrician. And at the end of it, I called my roommate from medical school, Cheryl Clark, and she said, you know, Ava, I'm doing derm. I think you'd really like derm. It's a little bit of medicine. It's a little bit of surgery. And I thought, okay, why not? So I applied in derm in California, and I was accepted out of the match at Harbor UCLA. And I had a year, there's a year lag time. So I did a dermatology foundation fellowship in where I looked at the expression of the elastin gene. You know, our skin is made up primarily of collagen, but elastin is the is the molecule that gives it the snapback. And so I did a fellowship looking at the expression of that gene in inherited, gene, they're called genodermatoses. So Because I had done research as an undergrad, but that was in neurochemistry. So I'm sort of this weird combination of a person where I'm got, I'm a super nerd and then like in a little bit of an actress and then kind of fun. Yeah. <laughs> But you were also, I mean, to think about um, when you started to, to to follow the path that you're on right now, these were the baby stages of all of the developments that have come in this space. Well, it's been a really interesting um, journey because, as I said, it's kind of backed into the dermatology. I mean, it really was never anything that I was desperately interested in doing. I thought, oh, nail fungus, yuck. Um, <laughs> Rashes? Ew. Okay, so. No, let's go back even a little bit further because along the way you got married. Oh, I did. You did. I did. And then you had babies. <laughs> I did. So I got While married. While working and doing I your know. life and your career. I and- know. So I got married in 82. So I was married for a year. He was an intern and I was an intern also. No, no. He was finishing his residency and I was an intern. So we barely saw each other. But then at the end we saw each other and I said, well, let's have a baby. And he said, sure. So I got pregnant immediately. So I was pregnant the last month of my internship and then I had my first son up in Carmel, 1984, I guess. And he was a piece of, he was a piece of work. <laughs> <laughs> By that, I mean, he just was high energy. And so I had to carry. I mean, I didn't understand then. You know, I mean, I was like a child. And so we carried him around and talked to him all the time. And then I had this wonderful Mexican woman who also carried him. He just had you had to talk to him all the time. And he's such a talented person. He's now he became a therapist. (laughs) (laughs) He's a licensed clinical social worker. He got a graduate degree in social work and is married. He's just delightful, talented athlete. But yeah, so I had my first son there. Then we moved back to Los Angeles, my first husband and I, and lived with my parents for a while. And then I started this research fellowship. You, the husband, the little boy. The little boy. And he was so cute. He had the little horses you get on and they rock. Rocking horse. Anyway, so I had him. And then I got pregnant with my second son and I was doing research. And so I had these two little boys and we moved to a house. And my second son is now, he finished, he got his PhD at the Institut Pasteur with highest honors. Wow. It's called, it's called the Jewish Mother's Orgasm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> 
And so he is now finishing medical school and is engaged to his French girlfriend. Who is, is she a doctor? She's an attorney. Um, and then my third son, he is now getting a PhD in physical oceanography. So looking at climate and change. And you were still married. At this is my first husband. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was married Yeah, for 12 years to him. So I had the three sons. And was that a crazy time for you, raising boys and having your career? And Well, was it a crazy? I wouldn't go crazy time. I mean, I think getting divorced was that was... That was the hardest thing I ever did, but it was the right thing to do for sure. And the raising of the kids, I had, you know, a team. It takes a village. And, you know, Rebecca and I are in the mommy team. Like someone calls me and says, my kid needs a job for the summer. I take the kid, you know, or we need this, I need that. It's all, we all spread it out. So somehow it worked, you know, friends, my parents were around. It sounds to me as if in your life and with your dad and then you and now your children, the intellectual side of your family genetics is very strong. Well, my kids are smarter than I am. Their father is very smart. What does he do? He's stupid at life, but he's smart. He's a smart person. (laughs) He's also a physician. He's an ophthalmologist, and he doesn't live here in L.A. I was just going to tell you about the rest of my professional life because I think that that's very interesting. I worked at – in dermatology, I did my training down at Harbor UCLA. So I saw basically immigrants. (laughs) And it was a terrific experience, you know. So then I was looking at maybe doing a research career, but my mentor, Yoni Uito, he left for Jefferson in Philadelphia. So he was gone. So I didn't really have anybody to continue the research with. And the marriage was struggling at that time. And so I ended up working in private practice for somebody named Howard Murad, who had created a whole, he was doing the glycolic acid right then. So I worked for him and for another doctor in Santa Monica part-time. I worked about three days a week, two and a half, something like that, for seven years. And then at the end of seven years, I bought a practice, which is now 20, almost 21 years ago. And I started practicing. This is the other part. You have to be there at the right time in the right place. And so that was the beginning almost 30 years ago of cosmetic dermatology. So there was injectable collagen and there was like two lasers. Now there's about 15 fillers. There's neurotoxin, neuromodulators. There weren't any of those then. But, you know, there's hundreds of lasers and there's – I mean the whole field has exploded. But I was there at the – ground floor. And so it became such an interesting, I mean, because as I said, if I was doing all those things I mentioned earlier, I would have gone nuts. But to be able to be creative in the use of all of these different modalities to create, to help people look their best was just the most fantastic gift. And so then about 12 years ago, I was approached through a plastic surgeon to do, and I, so I did some television early on because some of my patients were producers and they were doing some makeovers mm-hmm. or whatever they were doing. But then they came up with the show Extreme Makeover, which was the show. mommy show because Extreme Makeover, the home edition was actually a spinoff of that as was the Swan and all the other ones. You have to be old enough to know what these shows are. <laughs> so they approached me, this plastic surgeon had a patient who had skin issues and he told the producers, you need a dermatologist. Why don't you go talk to Shamban? So they came over and they did kind of like a video <laughs> then I said, well, let me see the patient first. Let me see what if I can – let me see what I can do for her. So I said, okay, well, why, let's do it on Saturday. And I said, okay, great. So I went to the gym and I came back and my hair was wet and I had no makeup on. 
And they were there with a big camera, you know, like like the old days. I mean, like 12 years ago, you know, like a big Mm -hmm. ass camera. And I was like, what are you doing? And he said, oh, we just saw we just tape a little bit. And I said, "Okay, fine. So I go to my (laughs) office staff because we're open on Saturdays. I said, who's got some earrings? You know, can someone you anybody got a little eyeliner? I put on some lipstick, brushed my hair. I was wet, wet hair. And then I went in to see, you know, we interviewed the patient. He was taping me. He was coaching me. <laughs> and so then, of course, that ended up in the final show. <laughs> it was the most profound experience to see these people because they were, they were cat. They call it casting. They were recruited from all over with their stories. And they came in like, you know, like just shriveled up, just so sad. And they ended up with this huge self-confidence. It was the most remarkable thing and to be part of that process. So um, it was really quite an experience on every level, both as a physician and then as being able to communicate with the masses. And I think that that show was the first real show to let everybody know that it's okay to have these procedures done and that Kardashians have finished it off. Where do you think that line crosses when people are looking for, in a way, quick fixes to solve their problems of inner self-worth or whatever through, oh, if I just look more beautiful, my life is going to change. What's your thoughts on that? Or If someone is really depressed and miserable, changing their appearance isn't going to change their life. And every plastic surgeon knows that. Every good aesthetic physician knows that. Is the short answer yeah, to but your there question. are plenty of physicians that will do it anyway, right. even though they know better. Yeah. They'll the do it because they want to get paid. Yeah, I mean, I call that aesthetic responsibility. That's aesthetic irresponsibility to do yeah. something and say, "Okay, you're going to feel better," rather than, "Okay, let's you go see a therapist, and then after you're feeling better, you come back and we'll mm. talk about it." Do you have so, conversations like that with always. your patients? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's less about patients. You know, it's kind of you know how people resemble their dogs. So it's the same thing in the practice. Like you attract a certain patient clientele. So I don't attract crazy people. What do you do when somebody comes in and they say to you, I need my lips bigger? Mm-hmm. And you say to them, your lips are big enough and they insist upon doing that. Do you have conversations with people who are going over where they should be? Well, I, I draw the line. I mean, it's my work walking out, walking around on the streets. Right. You know, I mean, we're, we, if, as aesthetic physicians, we're the artists of our generation. So we don't want our artwork to look <laughs> ridiculous so you see hmm. some of that be these women walking around their lips are so big they touch the bottom of their nose it's the most bizarre yeah. thing and it's they competition but that looks pretty it's competition between the lips and the boobs yeah in the whole uh growing awareness of wellness and eternal internal wellness you know drinking water or things like that are going to help your skin so you know as a doctor what are the things that you would say is a really good general overall practice um you know it all adds up to um everything everybody says says that nobody wants to hear. Yes, you have to sleep. You've got to eat fruits and vegetables. We're really like gorillas. We just really were not designed to eat tons of protein and lots of sugar. I have a question that's not about skincare. It's really about your journey. It goes Mm -hmm. back to you have had, you've really used your light. You've used your gifts as you've gone through your life and really good things have come out of that. And you talked about the divorce being a challenge, but ultimately the right choice for you. In your journey, did you have struggle? I think that the biggest struggle for me has been my personal life because I am a personable person and I like men and I would like to be partnered up. And so I think that's been the biggest, that's been the Mm -hmm. hardest thing. I have not, I have not chosen well. 
So I'm dating. That's beautiful. <laughs> but I am dating much more consciously. But now I'm so now I'm a thousand years old. <laughs> Talk but, about that a little about how hard or it, difficult. I mean, I like younger guys because they're sort of more optimistic and they're I mean, I think the older guys are sort of mm. cynical. I mean, there's not not all of them, but you have to kind of catch them when they fall off of the tree of their marriage, either because the spouse died or but yeah, in terms of personal struggle, I think Honestly, the hardest thing for me is people's pain. I struggle with that. I just can't. It's so hard for me to see the pain. I can't stand it when people are mean to their kids. I can't stand it when people are mean to each other. Yeah, I'm very sensitive to that. I think it sort of goes along with the healing part mm-hmm. that was just there. You know, mm-hmm. it's just hardwired into mm-hmm. me. And But in terms of like a big-ass struggle, I would say the biggest thing was realizing that my the relationship with my first husband and then sadly my second husband too was toxic and I had to get out those were the hardest things to do mm-hmm. were you in love with him your first husband um i guess i kind of loved him i mean i you know have you had a great love oh do we have to talk about that <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh what if one of them listens you know i can't talk well let's just call him mr x Yes, my last boyfriend, I really loved him, but it didn't work out because it was too much. It was long distance, and he had his issues of his own. And I really loved – I'm going to say it. And he was no way he's going to listen to this. David Bagshaw, I really loved him. I really – and I loved, I loved Tucker too. I loved – so I loved the people who I met more when I was in my 20s than mm-hmm. later. And my husband, yeah, he was fine. <laughs> Were they, yeah, and my had- second husband, yeah, he, he would have been a better friend than a husband. You, you absolutely for? will listen to this. And what are you, or what? And but what he was. You... But it was great for me as a life because I met so many people through him that are now my close friends. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. and he was in entertainment. He was a writer. And what have you learned from those relationships? And now, at your age, what are you looking for? Um, I know someone who just who who is who is a mature. <laughs> okay, let me take that board away. Someone who. <laughs> is basically happy and fun and successful and not going to be jealous and and be able to keep up physically, emotionally, and, and is just a really considerate, generous person. But you said successful, so what does that mean? I mean, it could be successful as a, as a writer or as a college professor. I mean, just some, something they're very content. I mean, they have to have enough money. Right. I'm not but gonna money pay. is it's not, not the... good. It's not good in a relationship for a woman to pay for a guy. It's not good. It's not how they're wired. And as I said, I'm so – I'm ultra sensitive to people. Well, in your work, it must be hard to have that it sensitivity. It is. I have to – yeah, and I've got – I have to back it off. You know, if I go into a big room of people, sometimes I just can't do it because I f- it's like I feel everybody's mm-hmm. – It's very it. intuitive mm-hmm. part of you then. You take it in. I do. So I have to like use techniques to not take it yeah. all in. That's interesting because when you said you could walk into a room with a patient and just know what was wrong, mm-hmm. which is a very intuitive sense about sort of your inner computer evaluating quickly mm-hmm. what's going on. It was probably from my traumatic childhood. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't – when I say traumatic, no, my sister was like – she was a real problem because she was fighting with my parents all the time and I was a little. Mm-hmm. I was three, four. I was terrified. So I think maybe from that I was used to looking at people. <laughs> you know, what's Reading going situations, on. yeah. yeah. How did you learn how to take that consciousness that you have and pull it back in a safe way for yourself? How did you learn to do that? Yeah, you read about and no, learned no, to do? self-taught. Mm-hmm. But when I went in to see a patient, I could tell whether they were sick or not. That was the beginning. That was the start, just seeing if someone was ill. And then the rest putting together what was wrong, that was learning to be a doctor. What you just said is so powerful. I'm just thinking about the kinds of people that you have had crossed your path. And clearly, 
the external view of somebody is, is the first thing that anybody sees. And you must have seen people that broke your heart. And the empathy that you have is an instinctive part of your personality. I can only imagine how you had to learn to protect yourself. Yeah, it's hard. That's a heavy weight. Wow. But, it's, but listen, it's a gift. So I'm grateful. Yeah. You know, no whining on the cruise ship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you very much them. for joining Thank us. You. Thank you so Thank much. You. Coming this Thursday, we're releasing two new episodes. They continue our celebration of women in film and television. You'll meet Tracy Edwards and her director, Alex Holmes, who discuss their new documentary, Maiden. And Christine Kaplan and Angela Stern as they talk about their new indie film project, Mama's Eggnog. First, when Tracy Edwards was kicked out of high school at the age of 15, she backpacked across Europe. Two years later, this dropout turned bartender was invited to be a sailboat crew member and found a home at sea. She learned the ropes and moved from cook and stewardess to fully-fledged sailor. Four years later, fed up with being underestimated as a sailor, she partnered with the King of Jordan and assembled and led an historic first, an all-female crew, racing in the 1989-1990 Whitbread Round the World Boat Race. It's a grueling nine-month competition. Her colleagues warned her, it's impossible, you'll all die out there. They didn't. Now she and Alex discuss the amazing 33,000-mile race that tells Tracy's story of breaking the gender barrier in world distance sailing. And also on Thursday, you'll get to meet Christine Kaplan and Angela Stern, the founders of Before You Think Productions, as they talk about their new indie film project, Mama's Eggnog. Before they met, both women enjoyed successful careers in entertainment, Angela as an actor and writer, and Christine for working on Seinfeld and The Larry Sanders Show. Their collaboration began when they first met at acting school and rapidly developed the play Mama's Eggnog. The play quickly received recognition as a finalist in the Samuel French Off-Off-Broadway Short Play Festival and the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, among others. Today they're making Mama's Eggnog and bringing their deep understanding of the entertainment industry to other female-led film and TV projects. So join us Thursday for a unique doubleheader as we rewind to the beginning and say it forward with two very different and revealing new episodes. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 